Welcome to Orion Valley. Hello, film listeners. I'm Josh Wall, and frankly, I love movies. Welcome to my podcast where I dissect movies with fellow film enthusiasts and discuss why we love the medium as much as we do. My old screenwriting professor, David Negrin, joins us today to talk about love, redemption, and frogs in Paul Thomas Anderson's third feature film, Magnolia. All right, this is a very special episode. It has taken us way too long uh, to get um, David Negrin, my old screenwriting professor, on the show. How are you doing, sir? I'm well. Josh, great to be here. Oh, it's, it's great to have you here. I'm really excited. Um, it's This is a very interesting episode. So this is the second in our kind of trilogy of episodes talking about some movies that we just really wanted to talk about, not really putting them in any singular specific series. There's a lot going on in this movie. There's a lot to talk about, but I kind of wanted to just dive head first. I've asked this on all of the other episodes. Is this in your mind, because you picked this, and I remember in your class saying this Magnolia. was your favorite. I did, yes. yeah. We did, we did mag, uh, doing Magnolia, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's third film. And yeah, I remember you saying in your class when you first introduced yourself um, that this was your favorite movie and his, of his. Uh, and I'm just curious, do you think this is a perfect movie? <laughs> no, come on. No, no movie is perfect. Any, any, no, nothing, nothing. No, absolutely not. Filmmaking is never perfect. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's, it's too many art forms slammed together. Just finishing, as I always say, just finishing a film is a miracle that it gets. Done. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. But, I think when people ask me, uh, you know, what's your favorite movie, which is a ridiculous question for anyone who's a film lover, um, (laughs) you know, because it's impossible to have one. Um, I think the things that the reason I say Magnolia is like my favorite film or is always in my top five. I mean, I think there's a couple of reasons. I think um, I think, first of all, um, it has. Uh, all the things about filmmaking in it that I love about filmmaking and screenwriting, and they got me into it. Um, mm-hmm. It has, first of all, it's like ensemble storytelling, right? Which was this great gimmick in the nineties and yeah. or not just the nineties, but it was popular then when I was becoming a filmmaker. And so I love that. Um, it has all these character pieces, right? Re, you know, it's all character pieces. So it, to me, the artist in me is like, oh, this is so indie. But at the same time, it moves plot very fast. It moves, it has to. Um, it has, I mean, you know, the, the it has to create these concise character pieces with really high stakes very fast and then move them along because there's so many to service, right? I think there's eight stories in Magnolia. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and you know what else? It has all these screenwriting gimmicks that I love. It has monologues. It has title cards and chapters. It has (laughs) magical realism, which I love. Uh, It has Easter eggs. It has this like sing-songy stylized language every now and then. So it has all these great filmmaking gimmicks and it uses um so so also the the integration of film and music i've always been like a music lover i was a music 
person, you know, in the womb, just sort of before I was mm-hmm. even a film person. And the way that um, music and, and screenwriting are integrated in this um, is, uh, is amazing to me. Um, not just the album, but uh, the the uh, score as well. And hopefully we get to talk about the transitions. That was one of the things I noticed the most um, in my rewatch was uh, how amazing the transitions were, like how, mm-hmm. how directing, how the, the planning of these or editing later of the transitions between scenes which is so hard because you've got eight stories going and you got to always be cutting, always be cutting, but creating some connective visual or audio tissue between them, that stuff, that stuff is genius to me. I was watching some of the transitions last night. I was like, I don't know how this is getting done. Um, And then I think fundamentally the, the reason why it sticks with me the most is that I really loved the themes in this, this themes mm-hmm. of like loss and forgiveness and the relationship with regret and forgiveness. Because you know what? In the 90s, I was a young man. I'm like trying to figure out how to live right. And this movie <laughs> tells you how to live right. It tells you, you know, um, it tells you that, uh, uh, that, you know, we all have love to give and we want to give it and get it in return, but that doesn't always happen, right? And that, in fact, like the most defining moments in your life are those where your love is rejected and it scars you and we have to walk the earth with that shit. Um, and that the regret like hammers us over and over. And I think I'm a person who like, you know, identify with that. And we all, we all know that and we say, you know, forgiveness will set you free, but it's like the hardest thing to do. And this movie is all about that forgiveness of others, of family, of ourselves, um, and coming to terms with the fact that there are some things, some wrongs in our lives that are outside the realm of forgiveness that you can't forgive. And so you'll carry it, you know? Mm-hmm. What an answer. Um, I, I, I I agree with so much of what you said, and there's there's so much packed into this movie. Um, I'm really excited to unpack it, but I, I wanted to just say I first saw this movie. Uh, I was I think I was a, a sophomore or a junior in high school. This was about around the time, I was like 15 or 16, when uh, my ideas for directing and writing started to like, that's what I realized I wanted to do that. And so I was like, well, I want to see you know, all like everything by Paul Thomas Anderson. He's now my favorite director. Uh, such a huge inspiration for me. Um, but I remember I watched um, this and and The Master around the same time. And I remember I watched this and I was mainly focused on the performances, how great the dialogue was, the energy, like you said, the transitions and the way that the movie was paced. I thought it didn't feel like three hours. You know, it, feel, it felt a lot shorter than I thought it um, than it actually was supposed to. And I, I mean, had kind it's of still arduous. Like mm-hmm. this film is still arduous and it's a film I love, like I said, and it's something I hadn't seen it probably in the last two years, probably. Um it's arduous, but to me, this film always pays off. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It sets up enough and then, you know, follows through with it very well. Um, and then so I, I didn't see it again until just last night. And when I was watching it, there was obviously there were a lot of, you know, story bits and pieces and hidden things that I didn't see the first time. But I was just struck by how ambitious the entire movie was and PTA came out and said like around this time he wanted to make an ambitious movie because after the success of Boogie Nights you know that was obviously that's one of the biggest movies in the 90s and one of the most well loved of his category after that you know you kind of have to top yourself and he put in so much effort and wrote this big almost 200 page screenplay about um, you know all of these characters and interweaving them and each scene has another level of ambition to it that I was just like blown away by. And yes, I think some of the criticisms of this movie is that it's a little messy. It's obviously imperfect. It has, um, you know, some hokey stuff in it. There's the singing scene. But I was like, if you put it all into the context of how ambitious and wanting to make sure that he is able, this is kind of the last time that I think PTA was able to make this movie or that would be able to make this movie in 99. It adds some level of um, there's art, there's artistic value to it, but it feels satisfying. Like I was watching, and I was just like, I love how completely balls to the wall this movie is, it's, and it how it goes just- there. It absolutely goes there, and I agree that I was watching it and looking and just sort of recognizing now with like a more, more mature producer's eye, like how expensive this was, like how many locations, how many special shots, like how much time went into each of these things. I was like, no one would ever let him do this again. I mean, you, even mm-hmm. when you compare it to something like Phantom Thread, um, that's a much more efficient uh, film to to direct but also he's a lot more of a master at this point uh when he Mm -hmm. made that so um yeah no magnolia's so ambitious and definitely pulled it off yeah it's so strange like it's such a it's a weird movie it's a very interesting movie it's like i love when there's like you know so many things to unpack about a movie and to find and like as you go back through like that's very exciting to me um and i think that I kind of just I think we should just have the Paul Thomas Anderson conversation now. I want to know like where he ranks for directors for you, what your relationship to not obviously just this movie, but his other films, because every movie I've seen by him, save for, I think, Punch Drunk Love, I love this one. uh, Punch Drunk, I think, is still good, but it didn't affect me as much as his other movies. Um, But I want to know what your relationship is to his films and where he ranks for you in terms of directors and writers. Well, he's someone who came out you know with boogie nights right when i was starting to be interested in filmmaking um i hadn't seen sydney or heart eight till much later um so i didn't know about him and magnolia the first time i saw it i kind of hated it it was (laughs) too much for me um it blew it just sort of just it was like drinking from a fire hose kind of a situation and last night, re-watching it for our pod, um, I re-watched it uh, in, remotely with a friend of mine from my film program who had never seen it. So in a way, I got to sort of see it through her eyes a little bit for the first time. And I kept thinking about, you know, is she going to fall asleep while we watch this? Or like, is she going to be confused? <laughs> and I kept trying to see it from my first time again. And... Um, I think, um, you know, Magnolia is really like a great example of how great cinema is not always designed 
for a single viewing. Um, mm-hmm. Because I remember I hated it the first time I watched it. I was like, this is confusing. It's arrogant. It's There's cheap shots in here. I don't, you know, what's going on? You know, the, we're not given a lexicon to understand this movie. So, uh, but only in subs, but I was urged, I also had like an urge to rewatch it and see more. And, and the more you watch it, the more you see, like it's, um, it's, that's why I think it's a masterpiece because the more you watch it, the more you see. And so I look at Boogie Nights, I look at Magnolia, I get really profoundly impacted by independent film in the late nineties, early two thousands. And I, I was just rooting for Paul Thomas Anderson. I'm just like a guy that he was pretty young at the time. And I'm like, I, you know, and he, he's a guy who like skipped film school and I didn't go to film school. So I was like, um, you know, rooting for him. Uh, mm-hmm. And cause he was doing different stuff and he was succeeding, but it had a sensibility that was, it wasn't overly intellectual art film. You know, it wasn't so inaccessible. Um, the stuff he does it's it's all very relatable it's all and and to me that's what i wanted and that's what i've always loved about his work is that his character pieces um whether it's the master which i think is just like one big character piece between yes. the, the two characters right um mm-hmm. and uh there will be blood is almost the same i mean it's almost just like a two character sort of uh thing and you know he for me he's up there with the the other auteurs of this the this era someone you know i just keep thinking you know even though the films are completely different styles are completely different i think he's up there for me with quentin tarantino and he's up there with Mm -hmm. Wes, wes anderson you know like people who are unique have always had have always done their own thing and then succeeding at a level that is both popular and has pushed 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 the needle pushed the pushed the edge of filmmaking as an art form um so that is why pt how he always appeals to me and um like uh tarantino um and wes anderson i think you know some of the films are a little weaker and some are a little stronger yeah, I think that a lot of his later films, I think it's fun to see. I think that like Heart Eight, Boogie Nights, and Magnolia exist in this kind of unofficial trilogy in terms of his style. And then once he hits Punch Drunk Love and subsequent films after that, There Will Be Blood, The Master, and Heron Vice, and Phantom Thread, his style starts to change a little bit. Not necessarily to his detriment, but it's, it's a very interesting switch. First three films, heavily influenced by films of the 70s, Robert Altman, Martin Scorsese. Um, you see, like, there's a lot of um, clever moves with the camera, a lot of energy. He loves those great push-ins. Um, you very, see that all over the place. And the, the whip pans. Uh, yes. <laughs> like, like that's. I kept thinking about Scorsese, but also I kept thinking, this is not Scorsese, this is... Uh, he's using them for different reasons. Uh, yeah, he's keeping for sure. the camera moving to keep our attention. Um, but Scorsese is always doing a cut to blow somebody's head off or something. Yeah. <laughs> right. Whereas yeah. here he's using a cut to reveal story. This, you know, Magnolia underneath a lot of the emotional heaviness of it um, is kind of a mystery. It's a series of mysteries. They're really mm-hmm. well told. A lot of reveals, you know, a lot of great 
secrets and then reveals to the audience along the way. And, yeah. and, and that's to me, I think another thing why I was attracted to him as a young screenwriter, because that's one of those first things you really want to get good at as a screenwriter is setups and payoffs. Yeah. And he's doing that throughout this script. You know, mm-hmm. you look at something For like sure. Phantom Thread. He's not worried about that anymore. He's a mature filmmaker. Yeah. <laughs> he's thinking about a lot of other things. But like right. maybe that's what, the comment you made about the first three films being this this uh, unofficial trilogy. Yeah. Like he's still a young filmmaker trying to do the, you know, the craft of filmmaking right with his very original voice. Yeah, there's there are more epics than anything else, especially, you know, this one is is sprawling. But then the other films, you know, go into a little bit more smaller scale, particularly obviously with Punch Drunk, but even despite the scale of the other films, they're a lot more methodical. He takes the key, makes uh, his wide ta- or his long takes very necessary. Like he'll just linger on an actor's face. There's that great scene with the master between the two of them in the auditing uh, phase. You know, in Inherent Vice, there is that great sense of mystery, but it's very much just like, let's just let this unfold naturally. It's going to be weird. It's going to be very know surreal but it's gonna be fun uh and we talked we talked about it inherent by some on the show um before, yeah that's but- where i think your robert altman comparison is makes sense yeah Mm-hmm. But uh, and like and with the master, it's very much just this cerebral meditation on. Yes, it, I think he starts to, once he hits there will be blood. He starts to do more of uh, focusing on the obsessed male character. Like here, he does a lot more of the ensemble stuff. With Boogie Nights, is a little bit smaller, but it's still um, kind of the rise and the fall. But there will be you get, blood. You get, you get a dash insane. of it. You get a dash of it in Frank T. J. Mackey. Right. Yeah, uh-huh, for sure. Male character, someone who's super obsessed with, uh, uh, like a, a a his corrupted and now toxic masculinity from his character wounds, you know, mm-hmm. and trying to work through that, which is something I totally identify with, you know, especially when I in '99 when I'm a young man, like, and the anger and the you know, father issues, things like that stuff. Um, and I think you're right. I think PT has evolved past some of those questions by the time we get to um, Phantom Thread and Inherent Vice. I, but I love that about him too. It's just because like, you never really know what you're going to get when you go to see a film. There may be similar themes or certain um, directorial styles like camera work. But the way that the story unfolds, like I thought Phantom Thread like was great it got better the more i thought about it because i was like damn that was not at all what i was expecting from him especially like you know most of the movie is very much just this artistic piece about you know how this man becomes obsessed with his work and you know he only has two other people really in his life and then once it hits the end that last like 15 to 20 minutes when it all kind of comes together and you realize what the sister was amazing. He still does that shit. Yeah. Which is great, <laughs> great screenwriting, great filmmaking. He still wants to flip you. And I appreciate yeah. that. You know, as a <laughs> 90s kid, like I want, mm-hmm. you know, it's great storytelling. He didn't yeah. just he didn't just end up with some ambiguous ending to their love that makes the phantom thread just sort of, Oh, and yes, they found their way together. No, he explicitly had a plan. He said, this romance is only going to work under certain circumstances. And Mm -hmm. 
we are going to be privy to it failing again and again and again. But then um, I don't remember the the woman's character's name, but she discovers along the way how to tame this beast. All right, I want to do just, just a couple really quick um, specs on the movie. So obviously the film is Magnolia, written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, his third film. Uh, it's all about um, these eight different stories um, between these characters uh, in the San Fernando Valley over one really rainy day um, and how they're kind of looking for love and happiness and forgiveness uh, in uh, Los Angeles. Uh, it has the songs of Amy Mann, who we will definitely talk about uh, later on. Uh, it was given, it was, received a lot of critical praise, including uh, an Oscar nomination for Tom Cruise, uh, the best supporting actor. He won the Golden Globe uh, for Arguably film. his best performance. I, I would definitely put up that argument. It's a Mount Rushmore. I mean, he doesn't him. exactly put himself forward for huge acting um, roles with, with opportunities, but just like pound for pound, one of his best ever. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so I mentioned the Tom Cruise category. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it. We'll we'll definitely get into it. Um, the film stars Tom uh, Tom Cruise, Philip Baker Hall, um, Melinda Dillon, Jeremy Blackman, Philip Seymour Hoffman, M- William H Macy, uh, Julianne Moore, John C Riley, Jason Robards in his last film performance, and um, Laura Walters. Uh, I wanted to talk really briefly about 1999. I think the past couple years there's been a lot of uh, reflective writing on 1999 because it was just obviously in 2019 it was the 20 year anniversary. Um, of that year and uh, just talking about some of the movies that came out, I wanted to read a list of of ones that came out. So uh, obviously Magnolia, there's Talented Mr. Ripley, Eyes Wide Shut, American Beauty wins Best Picture, Fight Club, uh, The Boondock Saints, 10 Things I Hate About You, American Pie, Office Space, The Green Mile, The Matrix, uh, uh, Alexander Payne's Election, Girl Interrupted, uh, Sleepy Hollow, Any Given Sunday, The Blair Witch Project, and Man on the Moon. Like, what the fuck? Like, this was in an, an amazing movie year. We don't get movie years like this anymore, especially after, you know, the dumpster fire that was 2020. Uh, this was, It was just such a year of, like, every single genre had something to offer and was kind of um, moving in different ways. And that's why I kind of think that it's cool that this movie came out that year because it was the last year that PTA could make this and that a movie like this could be just like put everything out there. And like all of these movies just coming out at the same time is just this very weird, you know, changing of the times, which is kind of a theme of this movie going into the 21st century. I want to know, do you have any specific memories of 1999 and going to the movies or anything like that? Or was it more of a reflexive period for you um, just two years ago? It was my first year out of college and I was working at a bank you know, and I was doing the very capitalist sort of thing, which is I had a computer science degree and I was like, got a good job making good money. One of my only goals in high school and college was to get a job where I made enough money to get an apartment in the West Village of New York City. I mean, that's sort mm-hmm. of every kid's city kid's like goal. And they're like, I just want to live downtown. And um, I made that happen and I was excited about it. I also hated working in finance, although I couldn't articulate that. I also wanted to be working in the arts, although I couldn't articulate that. Um, So I was watching a lot of independent film channel, which was the only access I had to indie film. Also um, the film forum and 
the uh, Angelica Film uh, Center in uh, in 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 the village, but more the IF IFC the IF. See, like I, just sitting in between on the weekends, putting on movies that were not Hollywood movies, that were not on HBO, that were really about emotional, you know, deep characters with emotional traumas that don't always get resolved. And I was like, this is fascinating. I was like, I, I didn't know you could make movies like this. You know, I, I'd only mm-hmm. seen blockbuster movies. And so I think 99 was early for me um, in inspire those years were, you know, I watched a lot of independent film channel. And then I started watching a lot of how to sort of interviews. I saw an interview with Elvis Mitchell and Paul Thomas Anderson, where he talks about process. And I watched a lot of Charlie Rose interviews where they talked to filmmakers about process. And cause I, I really just didn't know how movies were made and it seemed like magic to me. And I was trying to demystify that for myself. Um, at the same time, I was working a job in the city. Um, I was going out, drinking, partying a lot um, <laughs> and f- doing the things that I thought I was supposed to do. Um, meanwhile, there's a young guy who's very like basically my age who went to LA, uh, volunteered to be a PA on a set, somehow pulled together the money and the cast to, to build hard eight. And he's doing it. He's got, you know, and I'm like, well, yeah, I got my, my, my good job or I'm making good money and I got my apartment in the village and, you know, I thought I was succeeding, but then I saw a guy like Paul Thomas Anderson creating films and I'm like, it just felt like a huge thing was happening and I was left out. Mm -hmm. I was like, that kind of thing is going on right now. Like, yeah. How come nobody else is like, like excited about this? (laughs) (laughs) And it took me another 10 years for me to get fully into it anyway. You know? Yeah. I mean, I started screenwriting, you know, probably mm-hmm. in 24, you know, a couple, three or four years later, but mm-hmm. um, I wasn't fully doing it for another decade. It's interesting to hear how people get into it and start on that path. Um, I think that this year, the, the two movies that, um, you know, we're obviously talking about Magnolia, but the like Magnolia and Fight Club, I think, are really interesting kind of comparisons in that they're of their directors, you know, David Fincher and Paul Thomas Anderson, these are like their two pro- their projects where they were, I think they're most ambitious almost. Like, I mean, yes, you could argue Zodiac for Fincher, but Fight Club is because of how, you know, satirical and counterculture that movie is. And then with, with this one, with Magnolia, how epic and high concept it is. You know, the, the fact that they were able to make these movies so early on in their careers and then have this whole other life in the 21st century, it's kind of like it, it's kind of wild to think that like some of these movies like were actually, you know, made at their time. And we don't really get a lot of movies like this anymore. Yeah, no, it was a great time for young filmmakers doing ambitious stuff. And I guess people were putting money into it. At the time, yeah, you could sell a spec script in the 90s. That was the thing that got me into screenwriting is the late 90s 
and the early 2000s is kind of the end of it. But like you could sell a spec script, you could write an original screenplay and Mm -hmm. pitch it, get attachments, you know, um, I mean, we're in a completely different era now. There's other ways to get independent work made now, but um, through the Hollywood system or the independent side of the Hollywood system. Um, So, yeah. Mm -hmm. The 90s was an interesting film time. It sure was. Um, And I think that the changing of the tides is a big theme in this movie, and we have a lot to unpack, so I think we should just dive right into the critical breakdown. I like to. I would like to start with the beginning for this one because I think it's you know kind of the thesis statement of the movie. You could argue that it doesn't work or that it's just kind of putting everything out there in a uh, somewhat inconve- unconventional way, uh, and it's not ne- it's not really necessary. But when Paul Thomas Anderson does things like this with the energy that he does, I always think that it's unfair to call him pretentious because I think what he's doing, he makes a lot of big choices, a lot of personal choices and stuff that he wants to see. But he does it honestly. Like just listening to him talk, he's like a very quirky guy, but he's very passionate about what he's doing and doesn't think he's above the audience or that he's writing the next like big greatest thing. I think he's that's very much just- what you just said. And that is I was trying to hit on that earlier about you know, where he lands. He's never he doesn't think he's above his audience. He wants to connect with his audience. And he does some uh uh some interesting cinematic stuff but he doesn't go very abstract there are mm-hmm. there are way more abstract filmmakers like far more abstract okay and he doesn't go down that room he uses a dash of it here and there mm-hmm. yeah he's not he's not like david lynch or something you know he's yeah, I you mean, know i mean in david Lynch's david lynch is pretty abstract but he's also popularly understood there are completely you know, experimental filmmakers out there who like completely not understood at all by a popular audience. Yeah, for sure. And this, you know, this opening tells you three different stories of, um, you know, people trapped in death and coincidences, like the first one of a man being killed by three men who like make up the name of the town. The next one's Patton Oswalt's a poker dealer who gets sucked up because he was scuba diving by a plane to kill a wildfire and then uh the last one is a guy who jumped off his apartment building to commit suicide but was killed by his parents it's so like it's such an interesting way to open a movie um because i think what was different if you I, i'm probably on fair like unfairly comparing this to boogie nights but the way that that movie opens with you know the the tracking shot going through the club and meeting dirk and meeting jack and everyone is obviously very good fellas but that's an introduction to the world this movie has to introduce you to an idea but we get that tracking shot right after this prologue oh no we do right i'm we just get, saying we, like we get we get the eight movie tracking shot yeah <laughs> nights after the the black and white sort of analysis coincidence analysis prologue yeah yeah um and it's you know we get this um narrator uh i can't remember the guy's name i think it's like ricky john or something like that um yeah but he uh you know he's saying you know how like this some say that these things just happen that this is just a coincidence you know and that's kind of putting the seed in your head like okay what's going to happen is this all going to be planned and meditated or is it just like uh you know just 
every everything thrown at the wall. We'll see. You know, strap in for three hours, right? Um, I, does does it work for you? Does the opening work for you, or does it is it too um, uh, too forthtelling? Like, is it too just like here's what I'm going to tell you? Uh, here's what you need to know because. I can't argue with someone who says that, but again, putting it in the context of how ambitious and just how... What's the criticism? I don't even understand the criticism. I think some people say that it's not needed because the themes are still well... well, It's it's a three-hour, nine-minute movie. (laughs) At some point, he... PT just said, I'm throwing in everything I want. (laughs) This is not a film about what's not needed. It, It... it is an interesting bookend that mm-hmm. it's the theme from a different angle. So it's it's appropriate in another quirky P.T. Anderson way. When I, when I watched it again last night, I felt like it was a very meta sort of prologue, pre-intro to an ensemble film, right? So mm-hmm. you're going to have eight stories. So he opens up with like a little bit of thing of three stories. Yeah. And he says, by the way, these three stories have something in common. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it has to do with coincidence and it has to do with irony of the coincidences. And that this, in the, in, in, in the opinion of this narrator, that it's not coincidence, that there's something bigger going on here. And mm-hmm. so in a way that little case study on these three little interesting short stories is a, is a giving you the language for the rest of the film, which is here are eight stories that may or may not be plot intertwined, may or may not have parallels, but they have something in common, and I want you to look for it. Mm-hmm. And you know the stories. It's I think he introduces all the stories really well of the main the main stories that we're that are the subject of the film. Uh, I'll get into you know my beefs with one of them a little bit later, but we have. Um, this kid, um, his name Stanley, who's on this game show. Um, what do kids know? Philip Baker Hall's the host of it, and we see um, you know him and his dad having a little struggle. There's uh, Jason uh, Robards as Earl Partridge, and Phil, his nurse, and then Julian Moore is his trophy wife, and Frank T. Ma- Frank T. J. Mackey is his son, and he's this. Um, big, uh, you know, eccentric, male chauvinistic self-help speaker. It's really fun to see how every single individual thing connects, whether it's a thin thread or like an actual fully interactive storyline. And uh, Jim is the police officer. Yeah, John C. Riley is a police officer who then meets up with uh, Philip Baker Hall's daughter. Uh, what is what's her name? Um, that's um, Claudia. Claudia, that's right, played by uh, Melora Walters, um, and William H Macy is a um, uh, is Donnie. a Donnie Smith. Yeah, the old winner and of the what kids know. <laughs> <laughs> and it's fun to see like how people, you know, the actors that have been carried over from Boogie Nights, uh, and how different their characters may be. But Paul Thomas. First Anderson of all, this is like looking back at this twenty years later. It's like this is a star-studded affair. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my god! Yeah, like Patton Oswalt has like a, a under five yeah. part in this, right? Like, you know, and like, uh, I mean, this is a, this is amazing cast. It is. Cast. It's got everyone. Seymour Hoffman, rest his oh my soul. God. Like, it's got it's got um, uh, 
basically, I mean, I can't, I mean, I just couldn't get over, and I've seen this movie like a dozen times, mm-hmm. right? But, um, you know, Julianne Moore is, is magnificent. Just yeah. magnificent she's, in this. She's always been one of my favorites. And yeah, she's throwing a lot out there, but I think it's great because it's just, she's always so interesting to watch. She's always like putting so much into a performance. And yes, the scene when she's yelling at the, the pharmacist, you know, don't call me lady is a little funny. But like later on when she's talking to Phil, like I'm going to walk away and I'm going to not look at him because I know that that's my Earl. Like that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Like, so heartfelt i love that whole relationship like i was going back and i was thinking like sometimes with these ensemble films there's obviously some storylines that might not um you know you might not be as invested in but for the most part say for one of them i was like really interested in all the drama going on and again because the performers are all so good my, my friend who was watching it she kept complaining to me like she's like so those are all the stories. Those are all the people we're going to meet. I'm like, yeah, but it's going to evolve. Right. And like, <laughs> and I remember worrying. I was like, I was like, oh man, is she not going to like this movie? You always want people watching your movie with you. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Especially if it's like one of your faves. And mm-hmm. I'm like, and I'm like, no, this thing pays off in the end. And I told her, mm-hmm. stay awake. This thing pays off in the end. All of these relationships pay off in the end. I think you're right. I, I, I think you're probably talking about like the Stanley plot. It's a little, little lean, right? No, I, I I actually don't mind that one. The one that I'm really fairly uninterested in and know it's I know its place in the story and know how it pays yeah. off and it's important uh, is John C. Riley's storyline. That's the one where I'm like I I'm not really into this. Really, I don't think Melora. Uh, I don't think Claudia is given the best performance in my opinion. Oh my um, we're gonna. I think she's. On this. <laughs> I just. I, I just Riley wish. And so, first of all, I think Miller Walters is like the heart of this movie. You okay? think so? Yes. And I think John C. Riley, Jim, is he's the real narrator of this. Film. Mm-hmm. You know, his monologues are the closest thing we get to uh, a, narr- a real narrator telling us what the story is about. Like his beginning monologue and his ending monologue tell us, you know, the controlling idea of this film about regret and forgiveness and can we forget? And he has this really funny, um, but to me, authentic uh, uh, sort of love affair with, with uh, Claudia, who is a a very, very uh, broken person who's barely, barely, able to make any good choices in her life uh, for good mm-hmm. reason because of her trauma, which we find out later. Um, and Jim is also this huge fuck up uh, in a certain he's been way. A, he's a bit of an oaf. Such an oaf. And <laughs> just the, you know, them going on a date is going to be a car crash to me. Yeah, this is like, you know, it's like punk trunk love, right? It's like I think it was a really authentic sort of love story. I, I I love that plot. I thought you were talking about the Stanley one. To me, the Stanley one is like kind of filler. Like the like the whole part of him, you know, on the game show with his dad. Well, the game show is a great spine plot spine for this movie. It's just not that mm-hmm. super interesting. The relationship between him and his father is clearly, you know, PT was trying to do uh, you know, take another angle at sort of neglect 
of yeah. parental duties, right? So a lot of this is about, um, you know, the traumas of dealing with, you know, shitty parents, right? And the Stanley and his dad situation was just a little bit less well articulated for me mm-hmm. than the. I, I get what you, I, I I totally get what you mean. I just think that that whole because the, my whole big thing with this movie that I think is so great is that the whole movie, especially you know the main two hour bulk of it. Once we hit the end, it slows down a little bit, not in a bad way, but like most of it is like these really well timed, well crafted montages to in to weave in all of the stories, like uh, especially when uh, like they're going back and forth between Stanley messing up on the game show to his dad, you know, throwing a chair across the room and Frank Mackey's in the interview and he's kind of freaking out and Phil Hoffman's on the phone trying to get trying to get him on the phone. It's like it's really well made long form montages with the music over and John uh, John Bryan's score is amazing um and then like but just that scene of Stanley you know trying to not go up and do the um you know answer the question and his dad just completely freaking out you know like don't do this to me you get this really interesting sense Adam Naiman talks about this in his in his Paul Thomas Anderson book that the Stanley is kind of trapped in his own genius as opposed to being almost enlightened by it like mm-hmm. it's it's a weakness because his dad is now using it to exploit his own um means i thought that's really interesting you know it kind of comes to a head in the end when he's the one who states the main message of the theme or the main theme of the movie because you know he's the kind of the smartest one in the movie what is what is that what is that moment for you because or I not not that I, I i think it's i think uh our messenger of the theme is more jim than anyone mm-hmm. True, he does have that moment in the car. I guess not not of the movie. I meant of the uh, of the rain scene because the kid he's the one who looks out the window and says like this is just something that happens. So he's the one who kind of knows the secret of it as opposed to everyone else. But yeah, to me, that, you do have a- that, that that didn't explain anything. <laughs> I mean, it's still it's still like yeah, this happens. And I mean, I think I mean we should talk about the frogs, right? Yeah, sure. Let's just do. Let's just get into it. Let's talk about. What was your reaction the first time you watched it? I was like, "What the fuck?" Yeah, it was what the fuck. It was like, "Are you serious?" Like, it was. I already had some problems understanding what this movie was trying to say, and now I don't fucking get it at all. (laughs) But you know, twenty years down the line, and watching it again last night, you know, first things first, I want to say that. It is an arduous film. It's three hours, nine minutes. It's proof that, you know, some cinema is designed not just for single viewing. And Mm -hmm. I think Magnolia on its first viewing could not be anything other than somewhat confusing and emotionally taxing. Like, I just don't Mm -hmm. think there's the first time watching this movie and experiencing it in any other way. But then upon multiple viewings you get to go deeper if you choose, because again, it's arduous to view it again. Uh, And you start to see these stories have depth and you start to see that there are loose plot connections, but there are very strong thematic connections. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I do believe the film has an optimistic message. I do think PT Mm -hmm. is an optimistic guy, despite all of these suicides murders abuses broken hearts all this business 
Um, I do think he wants in this film to express an optimism. Mm -hmm. I think what the frogs were supposed to do is to shake the characters and the audience out of our grief. Mm -hmm. Give us some event, some emergency to unify around. I think it's a little prescient to say that it was like kind of like something that happened on 9-11, which is only a couple of years later, where for a little while the country was like really unified. Almost the world was like super unified. Uh, but if you if you give a tragic event that's 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 unexpected and crazy and and scary, it can unify people. And so I think the frogs are meant to unify the characters, give them perspective on all this mourning of the losses they have to kind of knock them out of it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Like it gives us hope that like, you know, it reminds you that strange things can happen and whether they're small coincidences in the beginning, the prologue with the black and white clip, coincidences or the cliche moment of the old man dying wish or this ridiculous like sky suddenly raining frogs um mm-hmm. which does have like a bible reference whatever which is just basically a, an easter egg yeah you have to figure mm-hmm. out if like you can google the movie 20 years later i think that it, was my first thought too yeah, it was I, like the, the the bible story like, yeah, yeah no i mean it's a reference to the plagues and things and the exodus mm-hmm. Uh, the Exodus verse, right? Right. So again, he's 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 giving us little clues. If let letting them go, let let who go, let what go, your regrets. And to me, that's what I think Stanley is saying: is these things happen. You mm-hmm. will feel we like we go through the funk. You, yeah, you'll 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 have your regrets and your 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 grief, and um, then something will have meaning for you. You'll see it. Mm-hmm. It's, there'll be a sign. Or it'll be a cliched uh, compliment, or it will be something absurd, and it will shake you from that. And that's the positive, sort of optimistic message I think at the end of all of this that PT leaves us with is something will push you out of it. Mm-hmm. For sure, yeah. And I, I, you could definitely see, yeah, the optimism at the end with um, Claudia's like smiling and like her kind of hopefulness. I want to save my overall takeaway for the end and analysis, but I think it's so funny just to hear people talk about, you know, when they see the, like, especially people who watch for the first time when the frogs happen, because it's just so out of left field. And I think that's good because the event in and of itself has to be something so like, not over the top, but so grand in scale, but also absurd that it grabs the audience's attention, but also grabs every single character's um, attention too. Like if it was just like a car crash, like one car crash, it would kind of be like, you wouldn't really be able to believe how it connects every single character to one another. But the fact that it's literally like frogs are just falling from the sky and everyone is just so freaked out by it is great to like, you know, he could have done an earthquake and that would have been authentic for LA and for, uh, have the same sort of motivational impact, but that's not, that's how shortcuts ends. That's not, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Right. Yeah. Um, but that's not PT Anderson, right? (laughs) he's talking about grief and regret and forgiveness and stuff. And so he decides to go, and this is, okay, again, you know, 
one event that links up all of the plots in a multi-plot movie. It's this like 90 filmmaking gimmick. I love it. It's my, <laughs> my shit. It was on theme. It was, on, mm-hmm. it was, it, it was on topic. Okay. It's not, yeah. it's not arbitrary. It's not arbitrary. It's on topic. It's intended by the filmmaker and that's yeah. what a creative voice is, is saying, I have, you know, I'm going to play you a melody and then I'm going to e- arrange it in a lot of different ways. I'm going to harmonize it. I'm going to do it a lot of different ways, but I'm going to stick to the melody. The Frogs is the melody. It's on melody. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it, yeah, it's it's intentional and it's earned. Yeah. Um, so and again, I mean, we've talked so much on this show about how it's important to revisit films and get a better understanding and get a new opinion like every couple years or so because you bring in other aspects of your life to a film uh, and this one just to understand you know what is being said and to kind of see how everything is set up and how meticulous it is like it's fun it's fun to go back and see it a couple viewings more and also I mean I think that but I think that the star or of really most of PT's movies are the performances and he really lets all of his actors cook in this movie. He has a lot of really great long takes of just focusing on an actor's face and just letting them naturally. I, I love in like most of his movies, especially some of the later ones you get to see it when it's just stand, standing on an actor, when you could kind of see their thought process as their lines are coming out, especially in Philip Baker hall, who has some really amazing scenes in this movie. Like when he's talking to his wife or even on the game show, when he's messing up, he's like, Oh, we got to, you know, the next, uh, the, 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 the next clue is, uh, it's going to be, you know, they were going to play a, a tune. It was a, a Chopin. Oh, I know I'm, uh, I'm giving away the answer here, but like, you know, play a, play a Chopin. You could kind of see how his thoughts are just like, Oh no, red alert, red alert. We got to get it out there. Come on, go, 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 go. And he's just trying to get to it before he collapses. It's so like well done. And there's so many moments like that, especially like when he's talking to his wife later and he's trying to like, you know, I, I cheated on you. I don't, you know, I'm, not, I, I, I'm sorry about that. And just like, it, it's, it's amazing. Everyone gets to do that. Everyone has their scene. Everyone has their moment in this movie to do that. And I think that's what a lot of, in my first instinct is like, shit, who gave him all this money to spend all that time shooting, <laughs> shooting, you know, long takes and exploring these takes. And I know this, it was very scripted, but also I know that he was also writing pages on days while he was shooting Mm -hmm. for, for Magnolia. So I'm just like, ah, because now you don't see this kind of character exploration anymore. I remember there's a line in the Frank TJ Mackey, scene where he gets really angry after the interview yeah that he's on the when he's on the phone yeah he mispronounces a word i think it's like doesn't he isn't it like subsequent or substantial or something when he's on stage right on stage and he mispronounces a word and he gets angry at himself and then he says the word again and i'm like that's definitely just a take that they they took Right, because mm-hmm. Tom Cruise got pissed at himself, but his character's pissed at and is losing yeah. it, and they went with it, and it's like great, you know, good directing instincts for a young guy. You, know? Do you want to talk about Tom Cruise? Do you want to have the Tom Cruise conversation? I mean, I don't know that there's a lot there to talk about. <laughs> I mean, it's really, I don't know how he decided to do this movie. I think, I think a lot of people probably, I think Paul Thomas Anderson is probably a magical person. I think. 
I've never had a conversation with him, but it seems to me he talks people into doing his movies mm-hmm. through the story and through um, his intellect, the way he just sort of describes what he wants to do on a set. And I mm-hmm. bet he had a conversation with Tom Cruise somehow through his agents. And I thought, I bet at the time he was like, there's no way I'm getting Tom Cruise, but I'm going to try. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, later in his career, right, for Phantom Thread, you know, he's he got Daniel Day Lewis, and or I mean, he got him for he got him for um, there will be there blood, will be blood. First. and and you're like, how did he get Daniel Day Lewis? Like Daniel Day Lewis is like in a cave somewhere, but he doesn't have a <laughs> phone. Like, how do we get this guy? And you're like, because Paul Thomas Anderson is probably an artist who loves talking about the process that actors go through and talk about the character pieces he wants to build for them. He makes it really fun for these actors. He gives them good work to do. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you, if you look at his films, you see that they're doing great work on that screen. Mm-hmm. And I think he probably talked Tom Cruise into doing that scene. And, you know, it's a c- credit to Tom Cruise to try to do something a little indie at the time. I'm not sure what, where his head was at in the nineties. I mean, it's hard, it's hard not to think of him as a somewhat malicious character in 2021. <laughs> um, yeah. But um, he's also a mogul in Hollywood. From what I understand, the way that he got Tom Cruise was Tom Cruise saw Boogie Nights and then wanted to talk to PTA. And so got him to come see him on the set of Eyes Wide Shut, which he had this year, too. And hung out on the set for a day and met Stanley Kubrick. And like Kubrick was like, you know, you guys to PTA and Cruise, like you all should do a movie together. <laughs> and at the time, PTA was writing Magnolia and started to write the character for Cruise and sent it to him and was like, here's what we're going to do, all this. And Tom Cruise signed on. Um, and it's it's definitely, yeah, it's it's interesting. You, you bring up a good point because Eyes Wide Shut was sort of, the height of Tom Cruise trying to do art films and trying to establish himself as more a serious actor, maybe get an Oscar someday. You know, mm-hmm. he's no longer in that realm anymore. He's no. <laughs> not trying to do that anymore. So, I mean, I remember Born on the Fourth of July was his big uh, attempt. At I love that movie. An Oscar, um, and then he gets a nomination for Magnolia, which is you know one of his only ever for this great small role. Um, but again, you know, cause there's so much meat in it, even though the screen time, if you added it up, it couldn't be more than 20 minutes, mm-hmm. you know, maybe, maybe 30 with the interview, you know, he was a star at the time. He didn't have to do this role and he did it. Um, because I'm sure he saw a filmmaker who liked working with actors, had interesting visions, and um, he wanted to do some art, you know, and that's a credit to him. Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, like, just in terms of, like, how his, you know, what his performance is in this movie, because, like I said, it's one of my favorites of his, and I've always lo- I always thought um, Born on the Fourth was his best. I always loved that movie, and I think he's just so emotionally raw in it, unlike a lot of other stuff he's done sometimes. He's kind of one of those, he he has a toolkit of everything that he's great at and he uses it all the time in like every movie. And it's interesting to see how his career has gone, especially, you know, he's still a big movie star and like is able to, you know, 
put butts in seats. And but like even the most recent Mission Impossible movie, which is an amazing movie, his performance is like completely different in how he actually you know approaches characters and like he's more just like I'm Tom Cruise. I'm here on the screen and I'm gonna do you know I'm gonna be awesome and I'm gonna do it really well. And so seeing movies like Born on the Fourth, Few Good Men, this like those are the three that I really love to see from him because here he's like he's so this is kind of one as i was watching it i was like this reminds me of like the 2004 2005 tom cruise height uh scientology poster child kind of energy that he's giving off because of how he's preaching about this stuff that he so desperately believes in and is obsessed with and is just kind of manipulating all like this breed of incels that he's pushing out into the world and just to see how he's like like how dangerous that is but also like it's fun to watch him do it's so weird like it's so strange but when he's like he comes out on with the 2001 music and just like starts flexing and then brilliant transition by the way because because you're 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 with earl and phil and phil gets this huge idea he's like oh my god i'm gonna i have a mission i've got to call him and then we cut to we're using the 2001 music for the epiphany and then we cut to frank tj mackey coming into it as basically a god in front of all these uh, incel guys, you know, who, who, are, who are looking for uh, some seduce and destroy tactics, you know. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, it's something we, we haven't mentioned yet. This script is very funny. This movie yes. is very funny, okay? <laughs> it starts out talking about a, a murder and two suicides and there's murder in it and there's uh, suicide and there's the sadness and there's drug abuse and there's sexual abuse. There's all this stuff going on in this movie, but every scene has a great sense of humor to balance mm-hmm. out the depth. And it, mm-hmm. and that sense of humor helps you, first of all, through the depths of it. It helps you through the three hours of it. Yeah. It, it also sort of promises the optimism of the ending too. Well, like how many other movies can you see Philip Seymour Hoffman doing a grocery delivery where he orders a hustler and Playboy (laughs) being so awkward about it? Do you have? And she's like, do you still want the bread and the cigarettes? He's like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah." (laughs) It's so good. but, But again, that's setting up a really great another great screenwriting moment for PT in the script is uh, it's a setup where we're not sure if he's doing that because we know he's a lonely guy. We don't know why he could possibly be ordering like three porno mags. And mm-hmm. and we realize ah, it's, we, the reveal is it's to help to try to find seduce and destroy. And this, this script is full of those great reveals. And that's what keeps us in the story. I wanted to also talk about continuing on the Phil storyline about um, uh, Jason Robards. um, uh, Because I think that, you know, we have this kind of relationship with him from, you know, he's one of the great stage actors. He wins an Oscar for all the president's men. And he's kind of like at the real center, kind of the heart of that movie. Um, And he's in yeah, and Cocoon. Know, see Cocoon? Yeah, I mean, that was a huge deal in the 80s slash 90s. Yeah. But he was, I feel like he was always like, he was always 60. 
Like he's he was sixty for like thirty five years, and then in yeah. this movie he suddenly became you know like seventy something, and yeah. it's really kind of heartbreaking to see because that's the other thing I think that's really great about this movie. And I think there's a sense of preservation to it. There's a sense of urgency, like not only in the way that everything is directed, but it's like I PT the other kind of side of it. I feel like he's like I have to make sure that I'm able to preserve these actors' performances and where they are in their careers right now on screen, especially with I think the way that Macy is in this movie is great. I think, you know, Phil Phil Hoffman and his, you know, kind of smaller um uh, emotionally vulnerable role and James uh, Jason Robards just like actually dying on screen and lamenting to you know Phil Hoffman about his regrets and just being like you know I, I cheated on my wife or I cheated on her and like uh, you know then Linda came along and she, you know it, it was it's so and the way the camera zooms around and also you know Tom Cruise having a moment where he went just trying to be an artist you know I mm-hmm. think I think in retrospect you can say that this film does a great job of preserving some amazing actors' legacies. Um, There's no way PT could have known that at the time. He's just being really, really, um, he's just doing him, you know, like just being really uh, ambitious Mm -hmm. and, you know, riding a tiger of success and, um, I don't know, you know, when you have a cast like that, how do you keep writing script pages, you know, with that, the pressure of a cast like that? Like, how do you make, how do you feel confident enough that you got it right? Like, Mm -hmm. that you got it. Like, I think, I think that's only by being a really strong storyteller and saying, you know what, I don't necessarily need to make sure Tom Cruise gets it here. I need to know, I need to make sure a son who hate, who hates his father, but still doesn't want to see him go. That scenario is what I want to see here that I want to see a super troubled girl finally get, you know, a, a, a pinch of kindness and then mm-hmm. run away from it. And so I think you, a great storyteller really, really loves to celebrate those kinds of human moments. And I think, you know, a great filmmaker probably just sticks by those human moments and say, says we're on set. I did a couple of takes. I got that moment. And, you know, we look back and we were like, I can't believe it was Tom Cruise in that moment and Philip <laughs> Seymour Hoffman in that moment and and uh, Philip Baker Hall, like all the all the Phillips, right? Like and all the and, and William H. Macy. And like, it's just I think, you know, he didn't know what he was accomplishing. He was just being yeah. ambitious. Mm hmm. The the Philip Seymour Hoffman or the the William H Macy storyline was the one that jumped out to me the most as the one that I had actually kind of forgotten about because I remember that he, I remember he was on the show originally and like he um you know had won what do kids know and that by the end him and John C Riley kind of meet up during the whole storm thing but I'd actually forgotten what the meat of his story was and watching him kind of search for desperation and feeling at the low point of this is not where I thought my life would go. I'm still kind of trapped into the idea of what I was as a child and the image of who I was. And then 
the reveal of why he wanted to get braces because of this guy at the bar who has braces and then ends up going to try and steal from the the store that he was just fired from like William H. Macy is the king of these kind of wormy troubled guys like he's great as in Fargo he's great at it in Fargo what year was Fargo 96 okay okay yeah so that's good casting for uh for uh his role in Magnolia but then, yeah, one year later, he does Boogie Nights, which is like right. a, a wild performance and like has one similar, of the best. similar schmuck who has like yeah. a little bit more clout in that that world. But he's still a schmuck. Yeah. yeah. He captures that childlike quality, though, where he he's still very clearly is just a boy who doesn't really know what he's doing. Um, and to see him that whole scene in the bar where he's just lamenting about it. And when he's like, you know, the you what does he say you can't it's not dangerous to uh mistake children for angels or something like that and then goes and throws up in the bathroom yeah no that that's and again that's on theme for magnolia right which is all about um which which you know controlling ideas a lot about dealing with these relationships where between parents and children that were frayed, these relationships, you know, neglectful parents or abusive parents uh, leaving scars on their children. Right. Which is what, you know, young men in their twenties deal with. Like that's what PT Anderson I'm sure was dealing with himself. That's what I was dealing with in that, era that's why i'm attracted to this movie and its themes right like it's yeah he's he's he he, and stanley is one of those angels right also like we Mm -hmm. look at him and all we do see him is being sweet and it's all fucked up that his dad is a jerk and they won't let him go to the bathroom and he's misunderstood and he can't advocate for himself you know enough to say i'm going to the bathroom and um yeah I think, and you know, again, Claudia is, was also an innocent who was abused as a child, right? Um, you can see Frank T.J. Mackey was left, right, to his own devices with his dying mother as a child, right? So that's 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 in the DNA of Magnolia. That well, it's cool to draw parallels between each character because you know Jimmy, Philip Baker Hall, and Jason Robards. Earl, they they have a lot of similar qualities. Like not only are they obviously yes the um, the dysfunctional father who had neglect on their child, but they both cheated on their partners. Yeah. Um, you could draw kind of comparisons between Stanley and Frank, the child of that abuse, um, and wanting to stand up for themselves and kind of be their own man. Same with Claudia can kind of be roped into that too because uh, the, Donnie the, too. Donnie too. Yeah, he was his parents to, stuck, stole his money if we believe him, right? Um, yeah, <laughs> but that, that, that's why I think it's not just a parallel. I think it's part of the core of theme of this film is is about yeah. you know the traumas of being a child sort of left behind, a gifted child actually. I think there there's a comment about being you know, the prodigy or being intelligent, having a lot of potential. And then the scars of your childhood, of the trauma staying with you, like Claudia's potential and Donnie's potential, right? Stanley's potential. We don't know what's going to happen to him, right? Um, Frank T.J. Mackey, obviously like a very 
powerful, like charismatic person, did he have to put all of that energy into coming up with a seduce and destroy system? You know, he could have like, you know, cured cancer or something, right? With his, mm-hmm. or been a great therapist or something, right? So I think, um, you know, that's the that's this that's the core of this this film for me. I want to continue on that track on the themes and go to the analysis because I think, you know, we've the critical stuff we all we all, we really love everything. Oh, actually the one other thing I wanted to ask in the critical was about the singing scene that's halfway through where they all sing the Amy Mann song. Mm-hmm. I want to know does that work for you or does it not? Because for me, when I was watching it, I was looking out for that specifically because a friend of mine had just watched this movie a few weeks ago and said that was a cringy moment for him. So, and I had actually kind of forgotten about it. So I'm going to go back. I want, when I rewatched it, I was like, okay, I'm looking out for that. And honestly, again, in the context of just how big and ambitious and trying to put everything possible in this movie, it's much better to do it the way that PT did in everyone singing in their own respective part, like in their own, um, kind of moment as opposed to having everyone walk hand in hand into the middle of the street singing it you know together or something like that so i personally don't mind it all that much i I think it works for the context of the story like what do you think of it i think it's great i think it's Mm -hmm. swinging for the fences um i love that amy man's album there were songs that amy man wrote that helped inspire scenes in the film and there were films that amy man wrote for PT script. These are two artists who integrated their creative processes, which is amazing to me. I, 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 you know, when we see that happen, you know, I think of La La Land, you know, I think mm-hmm. of, um, you know, some other great, very rare uh, examples of films that integrate music in, and um, s- filmmaking so well that aren't pure musicals right i mean in in the modern era we you know musicals are a lot more popular these days right so a bunch of characters breaking into song isn't actually that random but in uh, magnolia it's unmotivated there's no reason for them all to know the lyrics and so to me, it's an abstraction where it's the low point of the film, right? It's the absolute low point. Everything, yeah. you know, it's the all is lost. And um, he's chosen this one song, which is, you know, arguably like one of the most amazing on the album to show you how that everybody's feeling this same level of grief and they don't know how to move on, Right. And exactly, it's, you know, it's in the lyrics. It's not going to stop until you wise up, like letting go. You must, if you, if you refuse to let them go, I will send a plague of frogs on your whole country. Like it's this, it's, it's on theme for the the film. It's not (laughs) random. It was, it's, it's, it's taking a big swing because, you know, watching Jason Robard sing when he's supposed to be catatonic, right? Yeah. It's a little, that's the only moment where I'm just like, huh? But you can't leave him out if everybody's doing it, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, it's, you're saying that it's not a literal singing of the song, that the song and music in Magnolia is part of how I'm uh, 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 explaining the emotions to my audience. And these songs are all very intertwined in it. Um, so I love, I love that. 
I think I love that it pisses people off and I love <laughs> it piss people off. Where do you see that happen? Where do you see people taking risks like that in filmmaking? Yes. No, I totally agree. And I also think that because of how, you know, there was already so much like everyone's lives are just crumbling right before it. So the lead up to it is good. Like if it was if they did it like right as the grief was happening or that as Stanley was messing up on the game show or as um, Frank was in the interview, like it it happens at the right time because the build up to it is so well utilized as you said earlier it's earned you know the Mm -hmm. just like the frogs it's 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 abstract it's not straightforward it's not logical but from the opening you know scene opening images and prologue of magnolia he tells you this is not going to be straightforward that this is there's there is a language here Look for it. That's what he's saying with that prologue. Look for it. And I think at the end of the day, that's why I love this movie so much. It's this puzzle that says there's a way to live your life. I have some advice on how to live your life here Mm -hmm. about how to deal with regret and forgiveness and your, your traumas, but you have to go find it. And it's, it's in this movie. It's a puzzle. Go look for it. To me, I love that. Yeah, it's great. The other thing I was thinking is that, like, um, Adam Naiman also talks about how, because obviously this movie has been, you know, called Altman esque a lot. You could compare, you could draw comparisons from Nashville, the whole section. Have you seen Nashville, correct? A, a, a while ago, yeah. Yeah. There's that whole section at the end um, where, uh, 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 what's her name? Uh, the the main country star of that movie goes to sing this one song, um, and you know it's right before an assassin assassination happens. So, and then at the end of that, an, another artist gets up to sing another song called um, uh, like "I Will Move On" or something like that. Um, and it's interesting how the the music, the use of music, again in a non musical film, uh not only perpetuates the theme, but is used in a sense of community to bring everybody together in the same shared feelings and emotions based off of the events that have just happened. So there's comparisons from that too. No, and I've said this as a screenwriter and as a writer and as a filmmaker, but also being a lover of music, music articulates emotion far better than writing, yeah. <laughs> than film, than, than imagery, than screenwriting. Music is is emotion right into the right into the vein. Okay. Mm-hmm. So and as some filmmaking professor told me at some point when I was shooting a film, he says, remember, don't screw up the audio and the music. It's more than half of the film. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what do you mean it's more than half of the film? Like video and audio. Like, what is he talking about? Really, what he's saying is like it's so important. Yeah, which is why I think you know commissioning an album from Amy Mann, who is the right person. You know, he cast that role as well, the troubadour for the soundtrack of this, as well as the score. Cast that role, saying you know, give us some songs that are both sad 
and Los Angeles. And this movie is so LA. LA. This, yeah. the, the, the bars in this movie are so LA. It's, <laughs> the, you know, Magnolia Boulevard, so LA. Like, it's so freaking LA, this movie. And I know that because I'm in so New York City. And I watched, yeah. this, I watched this and I'm like, this place is absurd. These people, yeah. you know, before, you know, the the naturalistic performance stuff. I was just like, this is, I can't believe this life. Um, it's such a, yeah, it's such a mystical place for a mystical story. It's yeah. so wild. <laughs> um, so I, I think that is a good segue to go into analysis because we have a lot to discuss about the themes, even though we've already done a lot of it already. But I think there's a lot to um, you know, extrapolate on. So let's go to um, analyze this. One thing that I think is interesting about these ensemble films, whether it's Nashville, Magnolia, The Ice Storm, whatever it may be, um, I think a theme that you could find in I don't want to say all of them, but a lot of them, especially the three that I just named, is this kind of growing anxiety of change and uh, transition into a new time. Because I think it's important that this movie came out in 1999, going into a whole new century and a whole new time with a constant change going on, not being sure of what is going to come next. Same with The Ice Storm. That movie takes place um, right as the Watergate scandal is breaking in a country that is just filled with anxiety and scared of like, what are we right now? Um, and, you know, Nashville is this change in political and in, in the music scene. Um, so I, I love when a movie can do that. And I, I think it's interesting to do that with an ensemble piece because, I mean, that's just one of the, one thing I do love about movies that when they can do that is not, not only just capture their time, but also when you do it through the emotion of anxiety and uncertainty as to what is going to come next and having that be at the edge of a new century, a new millennium is just is perfect is a perfect setting for this movie. Um, and I think that having it shown through the eyes of various different characters fighting through their own um, inner turmoil and conflict, you know, pairs really nicely with that. I mean, that's well said. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I think if you're doing a an ensemble, I think just very practically as a writer or a storyteller, um, you've got to take, just to make the cast variable and understandable, you have to take people from all walks of life. And if you're taking multiple characters from all walks of life, you all of a sudden start to look around at the time and you look for, you know, archetypal personalities of the time. And so, yeah, I think maybe you end up reflecting uh, the time because you are, you got a lot of characters that um, need to be differentiated and uh, have original voices. And you're going to do that through fashion. You're going to do that through music. You're going to do that through styles and language. The first, the, the other uh, ensemble film that uh, comes to me, it's called Singles. Singles. Okay. Singles. It's an ensemble movie. It's a series of different young people in 
uh, Seattle in 1992, which is the height of grunge, and Seattle is the center of grunge, and it's just a bunch of love stories. So, and yeah, it's 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 trying to capture what it's like to be twenty something and single in the grunge capital of America at a time where that was the music of rebellion. So I don't I don't know. Yeah, you know, I hadn't thought about it, but I think you're right. I think there's it's hard not to capture an era. Can you do an ensemble film and not capture the era? I don't know. Uh, 12 Angry Men, it's definitely a political, I don't know if it's ensemble, there's a lot of people in one room. Um, it's still one plot though. What's another? Marvel films. Marvel <laughs> films. I don't know, man. Marvel actually is out of time really, isn't it? it, it, it it's yeah, I, get, I mean, it's, own, it's easy to find, yeah. it's easy to find certain tech, technological um like winks or like certain brands or cars or in all of those movies. But no, yeah, I get, I get what you're saying. Um, I also, I, I think that the, the, the big theme or a big theme, cause there's a lot, there's a lot in this movie <laughs> um, is yeah, the feeling of regret and, you know, kind of dealing with that. Um, and I think what was interesting is that, you know, the different ways that you could read it by the end of the movie, everyone's kind of reconciled, um, you know, with their or most people, you know, most of the characters have kind of reconciled with their issues and the regret that they've dealt with. And I, I honestly don't think that, you know, PTA is saying um, that it, you're wrong for having these regrets or that it's wrong to have these feelings, uh, which is good. I think he's saying that, um, you know, it's just important to you have to be able to work through them. You know, you can't just completely leave them lied like having them lay dormant in your psyche or else you know obviously something something's gonna burst you have to be able to like like frank frank tj mackey says you know he goes um the most useless thing in the world is that which is behind me chapter three and you're like okay (laughs) exactly right he's trying his damnedest not to deal with the past and we all do that like that's it's such a thing of the human condition we all want to move on. But again, and again, the other big quote that comes back again and again is the good book says we may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Yes. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah, that, that comes up a lot. Again, we get this, you know, this discussion of regret and like how to handle it. Um, so, yeah, that's all on theme for me. <laughs> and, you know, it's I, I think it's so interesting to have him like, uh, you know, Frank Mackey, he literally changed like everything about his upbringing, his personal story in order to accentuate this idea of the perfect male, you know, role model, because he wanted to he he's also someone who's afraid of vulnerability. I think a lot of characters in this movie are um, like completely afraid of of showing themselves. And yeah, their um, wounds are open They're they're, Their wounds are, are open. They're not scabbed over or healed you know they're they they haven't been addressed and that's what's good storytelling okay you know that's good writing which is you write characters who are in the middle of dealing with their traumas you know they have these deep wounds and they are trying to you know act one is i'm trying to pretend they don't exist 
But then some journey is presented to me that allows me to somehow address them over the course of the next 90 minutes. And I think there's the smart uh, or the, you know, the really well realized artistic quality of most of PT's films that he doesn't. I heard this in an interview I was watching uh, with him today that he's someone who he doesn't really judge his characters. He's just trying to let them be in the story, which is really true. And I think it's I think it's important. And I think it's not a critique, but a conversation that could be had that we have a lot about movies is um, it's important to understand when a character is being, you know, a bad person or if the movie is saying they're a bad person or is like they're a bad person doesn't know it. So it's fun to see TJ Mackey as you understand this guy's a douchebag at the beginning and he's doing some really wild stuff. But because his arc is so emotional and the stakes for that, his relationship with his father are so high and also well realized and again, emotional by the end of it, when he is, he has that amazing scene where Tom Cruise just breaks down to him, you know, is calling him an asshole says, I don't want you to leave. Ugh. It's so well, like it, it hits you and you're like, I, I totally feel for it because at the end of the day, we're all someone's children. Right. And we're all, yeah, yeah. there is that relationship it's that is so essential. Because, like you mm-hmm. said, Frank, you know, in, in all of those scenes with Frank <clears throat> showing us this creation, this armor, this, you know, pure toxic masculinity armor in scene after scene. And then also he's challenged by the reporter and he, she attacks him and there's some dents in the armor, but he leaves, you know, you know, still himself. He leaves um, saying, you know, you know, wait, he waits it out. He's silent. He's like, I promised you my time. I'm leaving. Da, 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 da. And I'm silently judging you. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like his armor is very, very powerful. And then just the grandeur of this moment, his father actually calling for him, asking for him in his dying cancer moment, which is like a parallel. And yeah. then he decides to go because it's been a crazy day. You know, and he decides to like any other day, Frank TJ Mackey would have had other shit to do. And he would have said, all right, maybe next week or something. But first of all, good screenwriting is like all the good shit happens on this particular day. Right. What's different about (laughs) this particular day? Uh, Also, by the way, we haven't mentioned this. It's raining all day. Yeah. uh Which is impossible in Los Angeles. It never. Yeah. It just never Which, it, in LA. So it's absurd, but it's also so P.T. Anderson, right? Well, yeah, which brings, you know, that kind of brings the stakes up to it and just how strange the this thing. I, I actually forgot that the movie takes place all in the span of 24 hours. Um, and I love that. Yeah, it never rains in L.A. It rained like two times when I was there last year. And it was like... It, it gives you this cataclysmic quality to it where you're just like, what the fuck is going on? Too, right. Like, so like, I think, yeah, I mean, so, so, so the Frank TJ Mackey, um, story, he builds this armor up and then he's broken down and, it, and mm-hmm. we get to see his vulnerability and he, we get to see him fight it. Like he's, yeah. it's like he's, he's lit physically wrestling with himself mm-hmm. to let it out. 
and that's magnificent. I mean, it's such for me as a man, like I understand like that being socialized in that way, that vulnerability is weakness. Right. And it becoming a mature man was a journey of, of that kind of wrestling with yourself that vulnerability is not weakness that emotions and, and the pain that you may harbor is something to talk about and address, not something to keep in you and let it fester and then let it change your decisions and say, you know, I'm going to use my time to get back at women, you know, because it, because it corrupts you because you just won't talk about it. Um, yeah. Great, great short story in the middle of all this, you know, and, uh, <laughs> there's a little moment at the end of the game show where there, which is by the way, by the way, and we didn't say this game shows, by the way, Los Angeles, so LA, because that's where all the games mm-hmm. are made. That's it's the heart of yeah. all the game shows. Like the idea that somebody like uh, Jimmy Gator uh, could be semi-famous for a job like like that is absurd. It's a ridiculous <laughs> job. It's a ridiculous yeah. thing that Americans watch. Maybe it's a global um, human thing that people watch game shows. But like, so they cut and we cut to Claudia watching. Yeah. Uh huh. And 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 uh, Jimmy just had a really rough show where he maybe collapsed on air, and she's watching it after him having visited. Okay. Mm-hmm. After wanting, telling him to leave, there's she's watching his show. Yeah. <laughs> Much like Frank T.J. Mackey, there's a there's some bone in her body that wants his. Love still, mm-hmm. despite yeah. everything he's done. Mm-hmm. And then scroll down at the end, it has all the credits, and the last credit is Earl Partridge uh, production. Like productions, yeah. And you that's how you know, like, what he did. Like, there's a lot of there's so much, yeah. like, each scene has like just you know several connective tissues to each story, and f- again, for emotional payoff, like, um, I mean, the, the fact that the 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 these are like kind of like easter eggs it's like kind of like putting a puzzle together um is infuriating the first time you watch it and the second (laughs) time you're like this is pretentious and it is and in a way it is very pretentious right but it's at service of something greater to me the greatest thing you can do in storytelling is if is allow your audience to feel emotion to walk a mile in the emotional journey of the characters. And it's in service of that. All of these plot devices, all these screenwriting devices, all of these um, Easter eggs and little codes that you have to solve, you know, it would be pretentious if it wasn't in aid of something so profound as this thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, totally agree and the fact that like again it's i just love when you can do that i i find that so fun there's so many movies nowadays that i think a general audience like hate because they're hard to understand the first time around or that you have to you know really think about it or go back and revisit it like that was my biggest issue with so much of the discourse around tenet because like (laughs) it's one thing like if you just don't enjoy it it's not your type of movie 
Like I personally loved it because I liked seeing where the story's going. I like seeing how Nolan was, you know, interlooping the time and inverting things and seeing where it was going to go. I think that that's so much fun. And just to write it off as saying that it's pretentious or he thinks that he's better than me or anything. I like, I just think it's so unfair. And a lot of times like artists are doing it because they honestly, they love this story and they're doing it because this is what they feel in the moment. And that's, what's great about this movie is that, so much of what is interwoven into this story about the themes and just the ambition is how PTA was feeling at the time. He was dealing with his father who had just passed away from cancer. So that's why that storyline is in here. And, you know, he felt like he was feeling pressure because he felt like he had to top himself after Boogie Nights. So he, in a lot of ways, did. Um, And so I think that, again, the honesty and the personality and... um, you know, all of that put into a work as opposed to just doing it for the like weird for the sake of weird sake, like is so rewarding and is so fun to see any artist do PTA, Tarantino, Nolan, like, uh, like name any artist. Like it's, it's so great to see, you know, Greta Gerwig with her two films. It's amazing. And it's so inspiring. Again, like you said, one of the things I respect about PT Anderson is he cares about his audience. He is not a filmmaker Yes, this movie is pretentious and there's parts of it that are inaccessible on a single watch. And you could argue that's accessible. But if you look at all his work, you look at his bodies of work and you look at the time he spends on the emotions and the scenes, he wants he is doing it for you, the audience. Okay, so he pretentious is saying, I'm going to do my film. And I don't care what the audience thinks. Mm-hmm. Right, and there's times where I think Nolan doesn't necessarily give a shit what his audience. Yeah. <laughs> in the Batman trilogy, I think he cares. Well, at least the first two, I think he cares. Uh, mm-hmm. Tenant, I'm not entirely sure he cared <laughs> if the audience could follow or not. Like, I really think he he had some that, some incredible set pieces he wanted to shoot. We could discuss that in another pod, right? But PT always I can tell you can tell and why he's one of my favorite filmmakers is he cares about the audience and how Mm -hmm. do we get his vision and that's Mm -hmm. nice that that makes you want to follow a filmmaker that makes you want to know what you know follow their entire oeuvre like where and try to figure out what they're trying to say in um, in their stories yeah, I mean, I got season tickets for this guy. I'll go see anything. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, so, you know, I think I, I think we should wrap it up and just say that um, just a quick summary of, you know, why we love this movie and how it adds to our love of movies. I think we've talked about it kind of, you know, a lot already in terms of the puzzle aspect and uh, the emotional stuff. But again, I, I feel the need to reiterate. I just love what this movie represents in that like its place in pop culture and the fact that it happened at the end of a millennium and um, uh, PTA felt like he needed to put in the utmost amount of ambition and make the biggest possible movie he could. And, you know, he still probably regards it as his best. Um, And I think that's true. That's, that's, that's nice to hear. I mean, and he think and I think that, you know, just hearing him talk about it and seeing, you know, who he is as a person and understanding, you know, how much love and effort went into this movie. And um, it makes every weird or um, strange choice made in the story worth it, because if like just how 
<clears throat> it'd be one thing if he did every single thing about the story like normally and like just focused on the interwoven stories, didn't do the intro, didn't do the title cards, didn't do any of that, didn't do the singing scene, and then the frogs happen, it would be a completely different experience. But the fact that he throws everything out there and just is like, I don't care, this is the story that I want to tell, is not only extremely ballsy, but is, you know, inspirational. And I, I love that. I love that he did that. And obviously Jim's I'm still gun, Jim's gun falls out of the sky too. Yes, Jim's gun does fall out of the sky. Okay. Yeah. I mean it's a smaller <laughs> thing and it's like almost all over. And at that point you're just like, fuck it. Okay. I guess yeah. Any, anything's allowed to fall out of the sky too. But yeah, yeah, he throws in everything in the kitchen sink. Go ahead. Yeah. But <laughs> so seeing and the fact that again that his career has, you know, he's continued on and made, you know, really great, almost modern classics. Like I still think the master is my favorite of his. It's kind of between that and Boogie Nights, but um, but this, the master and how he's still able to get these incredible performances of actors playing characters that you don't really see that often. He's gone a little bit more um, weird and quirky later on, but now just seeing in this movie of how um, he balances each storyline really well and was able to connect them um, and just the effort put into it and the fact that because of how much he cares about cinema and cares about storytelling, um, you know, just bleeds off the screen. And it, it makes me want to, you know, do better and, and continue to work hard at being an artist and to write. And, you know, I, I just love when a movie can do that. I mean, I'm as inspired as you are spending at least two hours talking about him. Like, yeah, he's someone who cares about movies and making movies that say things and moving his audience using the language of screenwriting, of filmmaking, of cinema in America Mm -hmm. and not some art film audience, you know, something uh, accessible, you know, I mean, you you open the podcast with, is this a perfect film? I don't think that's the way to rate something. I don't believe in perfection anyway, but I will say Mm -hmm. this. What I'll say is this, is that, if a filmmaker does three or four big things right, your film is successful. Yeah. And Magnolia does like seven or eight things right. Like it's <laughs> amazing how much he gets right. Okay. It has the ensemble storytelling. It has these themes that I, I love, the loss, the forgiveness, the innocence of the children being lost. It has all these performances, these character pieces where he took time to get these amazing performances that matter in the story. They are the stakes. There's no bigger thing going on, no heist going on that's bigger than them. Um, You know, he uses all these screenwriting gimmicks, all those tools, the monologues, the magic realism, the Easter eggs, the stylized language, the integration of the music and film together um the dialogue which is both funny and dramatic right that makes you involves you in these eight stories um when the stakes are all personal stakes there's no president presidential assassination in this movie it's not like white house down or something like the stakes are all emotional and you care about these characters because of the dialogue right 
the directing work, all the the dolly movement, all the visual storytelling with the the reveals, like the bartender's braces, like gets revealed in this like slow motion shot. Like there's so many, all these great transitions, the, uh, the, those, those swipes. So the director's work was done great. The scene work was done great. Um, you know, all these incredible, all this incredible casting, casting is a whole thing. Like getting casting mm-hmm. right is amazing. You know, I, you know, you, the casting is so good here. Um, then, I mean, and we keep talking about uh, uh, the overall, um, you know, theme and the the fact that there's a human lesson in all of the 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 unifying all of the the multi plot. Like, it's so hard to get done. So yeah. hard to do all those things right, and he he got it all right. So yeah, and that's why it's one of my favorite, if not my favorite film. Like it's still, I mean, I just watch. It. I will I will stand by it. I will say it's my favorite film. Mm-hmm. I'm happy. I'm 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 okay if I get hit by a bus. With people, <laughs> David's favorite film was Magnolia by Anderson. <laughs> hey, you love what you love. Beautifully said. Thank you so much again for coming on the show. Um, I'm glad that we finally got to do this and. Uh, we will definitely have you back on at some point. Love to, Josh. Thanks for. I'm glad we got this done. You look good. I'm very proud of you, man. It's good. <laughs> Thank to see you so you. much. Still, still working it. <laughs> Thank you so much. That does it for this episode of Frankly, I Love Movies. Huge thank you to David Negrin for coming on. Uh, He is a professor, a screenwriter, game designer, and an arts nonprofit founder. He's the writer of the strategic newsletter on creative process and host of the script podcast. You can look up his website at davidnegrin.campsite.bio. If you want more Frankly, I Love Movies content, you can follow us on social media on Facebook at Frankly, I Love Movies, on Twitter at Frankly Podcast, and you can follow me on Letterboxd at BigWalls21 for all recent movie reviews. Frankly, I Love Movies is part of the Orion Valley Productions podcast network where you can find other shows such as Ravnica Avengers, our real play D&D podcast, and Tea Time with Titans, an Attack on Titan recap podcast with new episodes coming out every single Wednesday. And finally, tune in in two weeks for quite possibly the most anticipated episode of this show that we have ever had. Nick Spezial and Sebastian Fullerton join me to talk about our never-ending love of Batman and Christopher Nolan when we delve into one of, if not my favorite movie of all time, The Dark Knight. Until then, I'm Josh Wall, and frankly, I love movies. <laughs>